Welcome back to the Walk the Word podcast with me, Pastor James, coming out of Sarah Fellowship in the Kingdom of Bahrain. We are walking through Genesis one chapter a week, and today we get to Genesis chapter 49. And about this, Matthew Henry wrote that Jacob is here upon his deathbed and he is making his will. So if you've not read Genesis 49, go ahead and press pause, and then we'll come back together as we seek to know and grow in God's word. So last week then, Genesis 48, we finished uh, with Israel, Jacob saying to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die, uh, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. And we said that represented a great kind of progression and a great maturing in, uh, in Jacob's life of faith. And today, Genesis 49 begins Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Now, so I read that this is kind of the the first prophecy given by a man in the Bible. Uh, Yes, the Lord has said that this will happen, and and then it happened uh, elsewhere. But so I read this is the first prophecy uh, given by uh, a man of what, uh, of a person, by a person, by a human, of what's going to happen. Uh, in the future. And then, so Genesis 49 is prophetic. It's talking about future events. Uh, there's a lot of symbolic language. And it's very poetic as well. Uh, it's a little bit different to uh, the style that we've had in the last few chapters. I'm pretty much in Genesis uh, in general. It's a lot more historical narrative, you know, like a, a story is being told, whereas Genesis 49 is a bit more poetic. So, Jacob gathers his sons to him, and uh, his sons are gathered to him, and he tells them what's going to happen to them. Um, how their lives are going to turn out, basically, uh, in at the future. And he begins uh, in what we would read as verse 2, and he says, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And I really like that distinction between the literal, come here and listen, sons of Jacob. You know, he is literally their dad. And he says, listen to Israel, your father. So he's saying, you know, look, come and listen physically to your dad, but also pay attention spiritually um, as well. So he begins with Reuben. says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Now, again, so I read recently that the firstborn son, any firstborn son, has probably been viewed like this by their dad at some point in their lives. Like, look, you are the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and power. And it's just that that general excitement and fatherly pride that dads feel over their firstborn son. But as we get to verse 4, uh, we read, Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And we're talking about the immorality shown by Reuben back in chapter 35. And uh, it's a really good example of first becoming last, um, so to speak. So he should, traditionally and culturally and contextually, Reuben should have inherited the birthright and the promise um, of his dad, of his father. He's the firstborn male of the family. He should inherit this position, this role, this honor, and these blessings. But 
because of his pride, because of his immorality, we see that the, the, his birthright, the, his, his, the blessing as such, is going to be decentralized and kind of it's, it's applied to Jacob's sons as a whole rather than just to Reuben as the firstborn, which is kind of sad. And he moves on and he talks about Simeon and Levi, brothers, uh, weapons of violence, other swords. Uh, we think back to the events of Genesis chapter 34. And uh, he says, I'll divide them down in verse 7. I'll divide them in Jacob, scatter them in Israel. And it's a very interesting way to look at this, that they were both scattered as tribes. Simeon was scattered and became the, the, the weakest tribe numerically. So their scattering was kind of a curse. It wasn't a great thing for them. Whereas Levi were kind of scattered as a, as a priestly tribe. And there's, and there's a few of them here, there and everywhere. So they're kind of a blessing to those around them. And then it moves on to Judah in verses 8 through 12. And uh, Judah's life, an example of grace, the unmerited favor of God, grace and change and kind of maturing as things, as time moves on. It says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. And all these things that are said of and about Judah, most of them, can be traced back or linked to having a ruling role or a leading role. And um, a lot of them, most of what is said about Judah, you can make a case that Jacob has got one eye on Judah, his son, but Israel, the spiritual side of this guy, has really got another eye on Jesus. In Revelation 5, 5, Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we read in verse 10 that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And uh, apparently it was about 640 years before David came uh, and ruled David uh, of the tribe of Judah. And then from this point, 1,600 years uh, before Jesus uh, did as well. Now, there's some traditional tale told of, um, of when God's people were ruled by the Roman Empire. Uh, they lost most of their kind of self-leadership and self-governing uh, privileges and, and rights. Uh, even the right to capital punishment to put offenders uh, to death. And apparently, so tradition teaches that this was the point when they thought, oh, our scepter has, has, has departed. And, and, and that was the point where they thought, oh, no, the scepter has gone from Judah. And then, you know, perhaps that then led them to a bit more of a messianic hope. They're looking forward to, to the time when it would be restored, so to speak. Um, and, you know, just how close they were, yet so many people just didn't realize, uh, which is kind of tragic. And then after Judah, um, Jacob talks about Zebulon and Issachar, ninth and tenth sons born uh, chronologically. 
Um, but Jacob has apparently kept the line going with Leah's children. So he says, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea, and uh, that did become true between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee. And he says, Issachar, strong donkey, um, crouching between the sheepfolds. Um, he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. And again, very true of the tribe of Issachar, large tribe, uh, but by all accounts, a very lazy tribe uh, of people. Dan, in verse 16, shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. From Dan come judges like uh, Samson in Judges chapter 13. Dan shall be a serpent in the way. As Samson came from that tribe, so did the practice of idolatry uh, in Judges chapter 18. And then we almost get this, this, um, he kind of pauses and, and in verse 18 he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. A Hebrew word, Yeshua. And again, it's, it's almost like he's got one eye on his boys in front of him and one eye on the future Messiah, one eye on Jesus in front of him. And he carries on and he says, Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. And Gad uh, was quite prominent in the militarily. You can read about that in First Chronicles chapter 12. He says, Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. And they lived in the choicest parts of the land by all accounts. And he says, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Or maybe your, your Bible says gives beautiful words or uses beautiful words. And this was a land, a part of the land that Jesus taught a lot in, hence the connection with beautiful words. And then he goes on for quite a few verses about Joseph. is a fruitful bough, a, few, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile. Now we get five titles for God. By the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, one. From there is the shepherd, two. The stone of Israel, three. By the God of your father who will help you, four. By the almighty who will bless you. With blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. So he's talking about, you know, Joseph's protection there. Joseph, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know, has had a pretty rough time of it, so to speak, you know, sold into slavery. Uh, the experiences he had with Potiphar's wife back in jail. He's working for Pharaoh. There's a great big famine. His family, he's, had, he's not had a particularly smooth sailing time of it. He's had a pretty rough go of it. But yet, as we read, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. This guy was protected, prospered, providentially moved around by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, stone of Israel, the God of your father, by the almighty. And down in verse 27, he talks about Benjamin. He says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. Benjamin became known as a fierce tribe, very zealous. And if you look up, if you read up on zeal and, and zealousness, 
you know, N.T. Wright writes about it very uh, articulately in his biography of Paul, and he talks about zeal being this unswerving dedication that you're going to do whatever needs to be done to protect your faith and, and your life of faith and your customs and your way of life. And from the tribe of Benjamin, we get Ehud in Judges chapter 3, Saul in 1 Samuel 9, and Paul in Acts 8. Three guys who were so full of zeal, who were so zealous for God and his ways and his word and his will that they did resort to any means possible to purge the evil and to do what they felt needed to be done. And that's not an endorsement of it. That's just saying, look, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. Yep, from this tribe came guys who were full of zeal. And then we read that all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what the father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Now, at the time, maybe they thought, whoa, that just doesn't sound like me. Fruitful bough, beautiful fawn, rich food, ravenous wolf. Maybe they thought, whoa, dead. What are you talking about? But how interesting for us to look back and see, whoa, yes. You know, Benjamin is ravenous wolf. Yes, Ehud, Saul, Paul, just to name three. You know, Naphtali, beautiful words. Yeah, that's where Jesus taught a lot. You know, Gad, raiders, you're raid at their heels. Yeah, very militarily involved. So after giving out this prophetic, poetic, symbolic word to his sons, we read that then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan. He wants to go back to the land that was promised to him. He could have had a very, no doubt, comfortable and prestigious burial in Egypt, but he knows he is not from there. That's not where his family is. And he goes on to explain, you know, which Abraham bought with uh, the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. So, you know, he could have had a, like we just said, a large, prestigious burial in Egypt. Joseph is still tremendously well thought of and powerful at this point. But he says, no, you know, Take me home, take me back and bury me with my fathers. And it's very, very interesting that he says, I'm to be gathered to my people. It's kind of a nod to eternal life. It's a nod that, yes, I'm going to leave this physical life, but I'm going into the presence of those who have trusted in the promise of God. I'm to be gathered to my people. And in verse 33 of chapter 49, we read, When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And I read something so very interesting about this, about this idea that he was gathered to his people, that he, so we read, he was very accepting and, and at peace with his physical death. 
And oftentimes people's physical death and their attitude towards it can be one of three. They can be very death accepting, that, you know, well, I'm going to die a physical death and then, you know, that's the end of me and, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust and, you know, what to do. Don't worry about it because I won't be here. They can be very death accepting. Others, and I think a lot of our modern Western mentality is like this, it's death denying. Most people don't talk about their physical death. They're not comfortable talking about death in any way, shape or form. And there's just like this idea that, you know, no, we don't need to talk about that. That's just not something we talk about. You know, deep down there's an acceptance that that will come for me one day, but it's certainly not something that we ever discuss or talk about. So we deny the fact, functionally and practically, we, we deny the fact that we're going to have a physical death. And then there's a third category that's almost death-defying. And that says that, well, you know, I'm going to have a physical death, sure, but I am to be gathered to my people. And as for you and me as modern believers, the equivalent would be, you know, well, yeah, we're going to have a physical death. We're all going to experience a physical death. But for those of us that have put hope and faith and trust in Jesus as a redeemer, savior, deliverer, Messiah, Christ, I'm going to be gathered to my people. Others who have done the same. And the Bible teaches, the word of God teaches that, you know, you close your eyes in physical death. You open them in his presence immediately. I'm going to be gathered to my people. And as we read, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And as we started with a quote from Matthew Henry, so we'll finish with one as well. He said, if God's people be our people, death will gather us to them. And that's a great takeaway. That's a great point for us to wrap up on today. There's three attitudes towards death. We can accept it as if, you know, it's, it's absolutely the end. So, you know, there's no point worrying, talking about it. We can deny it and pretend that it's never going to happen for us, to us. Or we can take this death-defying attitude that, do you know what? Yeah, we're going to have a physical death. But because we've put hope and faith and trust in Jesus, because we've got a living hope of resurrection, of new life, of new creation, of on earth as in heaven, then when we close our eyes in physical death, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So we close our eyes in physical death, we breathe our last as Jacob did, and then we open them in the presence of our Lord and Saviour. Next week then, we will talk about Genesis chapter 50 as we wrap up this wonderful book. But until then, God bless. <laughs>